What a good gift. This morning, <clears throat> this morning, friends, we continue our Lenten sermon series, Journey to the Cross. The gospel writers place a big emphasis on the importance of the final week of Jesus' life. 20% of Luke's gospel is dedicated to the final week of Jesus' life. Because of this, we are devoting ourselves this Lent, Lent being 40 days of preparation and renewal when we anticipate and prepare for Good Friday and Easter. We are devoting Lent this year to a deeper and slower look at Jesus' final week instead of spending only one week of the year on the central act in human history. This morning's text reminds me of an occasion a few years back that received a lot of publicity. Randy Pausch, a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University, delivered his final lecture in 2007. There is a, an academic tradition called the final lecture. Professors are asked to consider that they will soon be dying and to ruminate on what matters most to them. The goal is to address the question, what wisdom would you impart to the world if you knew it was your last chance? What do you want as your legacy? As some of you may remember, this was not a hypothetical question for Pausch, for the 47-year-old professor was living with pancreatic cancer and had been told he would indeed soon be dying. So under the disguise of an academic lecture, Pausch captured what he wanted to leave behind for his students, but most especially for his three young children, who soon would be living without their dad. Nearly 2,000 years ago, another teacher was preparing to say farewell to those whom he loved. Luke 22 begins Jesus' final discourse. It's a time of last words and testament spoken by a leader before dying, where a leader indicates the key principles they want others to remember and to live out when they are no longer with them. Everything that happens this last week is about mission and love. Let's now join Jesus and his disciples in the upper room and listen to some of Jesus' final words. If you'd like to read along with me in the Bible under the chair in front of you, this is on page 857, Luke 22, beginning with verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But Jesus said to them, the disciples of the kings lorded over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you, disciples. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you just as my Father has conferred on me a kingdom, 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lamb of God, teacher, Messiah, friend, speak to us words of life. As we continue to journey together toward the cross of Christ, instruct us and fill us with humility and awe, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. This whole leadership seminar comes because Jesus caught his disciples playing who is the greatest. Who is first, who is best, who is greatest. I don't know about you, but I actually find it pretty surprising at this point in the story that the disciples are playing that game. To begin our time together, I'd like to actually invite us to think for a few moments about power. What is power exactly? How does it work and who has it? Our wrestling with position and power goes way back to the beginning of God's story. A human totally dependent upon God is placed in a garden with everything he needs, including a companion. They have the whole of Eden to enjoy. God is generous. He gives good and perfect gifts. They have nourishment, protection, freedom, love, and community. There was so very much that was permitted, they could even eat from the tree of life. Only one thing was prohibited. They had only one restriction, one that really wasn't all that restrictive since so very much was permitted. They were to leave just one tree alone on pain of death. It was a gracious reminder that humans were created to live in an environment in total dependent obedience. We all know what happens next. Eve and then Adam, they eat of the fruit. Immediately they experience shame and guilt. By eating of the fruit, the first human couple essentially claims that they know better than God. No word for sin occurs in chapter 3 of Genesis, but we quickly understand that what Adam and Eve did is clearly wrong in God's eyes. The whole world is thrown off kilter because of sin. The story of Adam and Eve is the story of primal sin and distrusting God, of seeking to be as God, edging God out and refusing to accept limits. Humanity has struggled with power and position and being right-sized before God and with one another ever since. Consider the narratives in our modern culture for what power is. We live in a country that sees itself as powerful. 
News media outlets offer plenty of lists for the best and most powerful people on the planet. For example, Forbes magazine presents their list for the top 100 celebrities or for the 400 richest Americans or for the world's most powerful women. Another website lists the 50 most powerful people in Washington, D.C. since 2004, Time magazine. Each year recognizes 100 people as the most influential people in the world. Power can harm. In our passage, the disciples are members of an oppressed country. Kings are called benefactors, literally meaning a doer of good, but while these ancient kings and rulers were called good, they were using their position to oppress others. We could spend the rest of this day together recounting and bearing witnesses to abuses of power nationally, between races, in corner offices, within families, and sadly, within Christ's church. There is debris everywhere when it comes to using power incorrectly. Abraham Lincoln said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Power is the possession of control, authority, or influence over others. Is it necessarily a bad thing? No. God puts people in positions of power and influence to impact God's world. For example, in the Old Testament, Nehemiah was in a position to be God's instrument and to be able to approach the king about rebuilding Jerusalem because he was in the position of being the king's cupbearer, a trusted position and one with uh, the ability to advise the king. Deborah, a judge, she had expertise in settling uh, disputes. She was a motivational speaker. God used her to help to get Israel unstuck and to once again be God's faithful people. In the New Testament, Jesus uses two word pictures to describe our need to influence the world, salt and light. As salt exists for food, disciples are to exist for the world. To be salt means to move into the world, to move into the broken places in the world. We are not to hate the world or to withdraw from the world, or to be afraid of the world. We give of ourselves, we risk, and we go. We are to be people of influence. When power is used to bring glory to God and to dignify human beings and enhance their quality of life, then it is a very good thing. However, when it becomes the ultimate thing, then power can become a destructive thing. Power can become a counterfeit God. Pastor Tim Keller notes the idol of power is so deep in our lives that it is often challenging to recognize. We seem to recognize it more easily in others than we do in ourselves. With power so celebrated and seductive, 
What are we then to do? Is there any way that power in our hands can be a true blessing and a gift to people around us? There is so much influence in this room. Think about the places where you spend your time. Wherever we have influence, in families, businesses, nonprofits, schools, on teams, within this faith community, friends, we ought to be using human flourishing as a measure of success. How are we enhancing? We give of ourselves because of a concern that our neighbor flourishes. This is how we use our power and our influence, not to control, but instead to bless. Power ultimately is not in the positions we hold or in the ability to retaliate. We become more like God, not when we clinch power, but rather when we give it away. Jesus shows us the way. The world strategy is to make it to the top regardless of what you have to do to get there. The descent of Christ shows us that the way of God's kingdom, it is a different way. Christianity is descending the ladder of servanthood to become selfless servants. After the example of Jesus Christ, God flipped the power ladder upside down where down is now up and up is now down. It's the call to live a life of humility and servanthood in which power is constantly, repetitively abandoned in favor of love. The way we who profess to be Christian hold power is to hold it lightly, hold it humbly, and use it to serve. Scripture teaches us to clothe ourselves with humility. It's an uncomfortably itchy garment for many of us. For we who live in a culture whose preferred slogan is, what's in it for me? Before Christ, humility was considered foolishness. Why would you ever want to lower yourself to someone when you don't need to? When so doing, Jesus improved our life together. We will never be finished with this challenging work. It is said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking about yourself less. Humility does not mean being a doormat for others, having low self-esteem or curbing strengths and achievements. It's the holding of power for the good of others. It's having a realistic sense of who we are before God and who we are before others. It's understanding our need for each other. Friends, in light of the crazy political presidential campaign season, we now find ourselves in. I would like to offer to us the example of Abraham Lincoln. 
Humility doesn't come easy for any of us, least of all a president. However, British psychiatrist and author Russell Razik, he writes that Lincoln was a masterful leader because he was able to master his own ego first. Able to master his own ego first. When his political career first began, Lincoln was humble enough to openly discuss losing before the election. He amazed people by appointing his fiercest opponents to positions in his cabinet. He put his own ego aside to appoint whoever he thought was best for the country, even if they might be difficult for him to work with. He put himself in the position of a learner instead of an expert. Having humility and wisdom, believing that he did not have all the answers. Lincoln seemed relaxed about being outshone by those around him. Razik goes on to note that like few leaders the world has known, Lincoln proved that any leader's first and greatest victory is always that over his own ego. Friends, when it comes to service, what are the motives behind what we are doing? Is it to gain public recognition? Is it so that you will feel better about yourself? Is it for some sort of reward? The antidote to escape being deceived by power and and keeping our motives in check for service The greatest leader who ever lived said we are to become a humble servant. The spiritual practice we are engaged to take on is a lifelong practice of service. Spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, they are intended for our good. They are a means of God's grace. They are meant to bring the abundance of God into our lives. Luke gives us a lesson on the practice of serving others. In John's gospel, Jesus took a towel and a basin and he redefined greatness. More than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into our lives through the practice of service. We talked about this passage in staff meeting this Tuesday. And toward the end of this conversation, we began looking around the table and we started to celebrate different ways that we have seen staff members serve, especially when they have gone the extra mile outside of their normal job and scope of influence. But you know, it can begin to feel pretty great when your friends applaud your service. And before you know it, it becomes pretty easy to be back at that table with the original disciples, jockeying for position, secretly campaigning for the best disciple award. (laughs) Richard Foster wrote a widely read classic book on Christian spirituality called Celebration of Discipline. One of the classic disciplines or practices is indeed service. But here's what I would like to share with you about what Foster says. It is insightful 
in the area in the practice of service. He endorses the service of hiddenness, noting that if all of our serving is before others, we will be shallow people indeed. It's the whole idea of serving from time to time in secret with no one knowing, no recognition, no pats on the backs, no public celebration. It's grabbing your son or daughter and raking leaves at the home of someone who's in the hospital and never telling them you did it. It's doing something helpful for the people you live with and not pointing out it out to them when they get home. It's secretly cleaning the smelly communal refrigerator at work instead of waiting on the custodian to do it. <laughs> Hiddenness can deal a fatal blow to pride. Brothers and sisters, because of this, I would like to encourage us to leave worship this morning with a corporate intention for this very week for the good of this body, and here it is. I hope you will do this with me. Laying down your need for credit. What is one act of hidden service you can do this week? Laying down your need for credit. What is one act of hidden service that you can do this week? The invitation is to perform one act in secret and to pay attention to what this does. For your soul. Lent is a season to tell the truth of who we are, to be truthful in our lives, and to do some honest work before God. The disciples hold up a mirror and help us to see our need for confession and for repentance, for our self-promotion, and for our pride. What does Jesus want as his legacy? Jesus longs for a community that is love in action because actions validate a reoriented life. And in so doing, we can never lose sight of the cross. We love and we serve because Jesus first loved and served us. Pray with me. Oh God, we repent of the many ways that we have been seduced by power and the tendency that we have to exert power over others thinking we know what is best. Lord, we who have encountered Christ, we desire to be changed deep within. So would you unleash your transforming power within us and within this community? God, give us the grace to examine our lives and forsake our sins and to turn toward you. We pray together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen.